best name to born for this. Welcome to Born For This, the podcast that dives deep into the unfiltered emotional roller coaster of motherhood. I'm your host, Beth, currently a stay-at-home mum, raising two young children, some may say the unconventional way. I am here to share stories on pre- and postpartum life through the lens of some of my closest friends and mothers who have inspired me on the way. This is where raw meets real, where we embrace the chaos, the ups and downs, and leave no stone unturned. We'll laugh, we'll cry, and we'll hear stories you didn't know you needed. So grab your tissues and let's get into it. Have you recently seen the incredible home birth of triplets making waves on social media? Today, I am so excited to be joined by one of the midwives who attended the birth. Since finding Christine's Midwife Without Boundaries page, I have been hooked on her stories of traveling the world as a midwife, helping in some of the poorest parts of Africa, and the hundreds of breech births she attends and so strongly advocates for. I'm a total birth geek, obsessed with all things birth, and hope to work in the space of birth one day. So being able to speak to a badass midwife who has probably seen more births than anyone else in the world is so honoring. Thank you for joining me, Christine. Hi, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we get into it, I think it's always really interesting to see what people's beliefs were surrounding birth growing up. You're one of seven children. What did you believe of childbirth growing up and where did your journey to midwifery begin? Well, um, gratefully, because of my mother, I I viewed pregnancy and birth in a very normal way. My mother did not have home births, but um, I was the oldest, um, and she was pretty much um, eternally pregnant from from my memory. You know, uh, while I was growing up, um, and so I saw that I saw her just go through her pregnancies and. Then, of course, she um, birthed at the hospital, but it was not anything that I was taught to fear. And I thought it was just a very normal, um, uh, just part of what we do. And so I just learned that that birth was a normal, natural thing. And um, I didn't even really know about midwives or home births until I got um, into paramedic school. And then I... uh, I had to write a paper on something and we we were given a list of topics we could choose from. And that's when I discovered midwifery and home birth. And I, I wrote um, a paper on that. And it wasn't till well, several years later that I actually became a midwife. Um, but that was on the, the back burner. But uh, then eventually I did. I was late into midwifery. Um, you know, I was 26 at the time, I think, when I started. So that's basically it. Incredible. I think it's, yeah, I was lucky to be born. Um, my mother had a home birth with me. I unfortunately wasn't surrounded by any other births, but she actually studied to be a midwife as well when I was in high school. And she worked, you know, independently as a midwife for a little while. So I myself as well, you know, viewed pregnancy and birth as a very natural thing. So yeah, I think we're very lucky to be born sort of into that space. Now, your humanitarian work is incredible, and I really can't wait to get into learning a bit more about that. But I know we're all itching to find out about the triplets' home birth. So thank you so much to your client for allowing you to share the story. Yeah. What gestation did you become involved with them? So um, they reached out um to me and actually um 
a um, a physician also who um, attends home births occasionally, and he ultimately was not able to. Uh, he had some conflicts in his schedule, so he was not able to do that. But I had been oh involved with her since the you know early second trimester, um, just by email. And uh, she uh, got my number from another woman that I helped with a triplet birth uh, last year. And so um, they actually live, coincidentally enough, they live like two hours away from each other in the same state. And I'm like, is there something in the water? Because both of them were, <laughs> they were both naturally occurring. Everybody asks. And I'm like, she was a gravitas seven. She does not need IVF, you know? So um, yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I got involved at, like I said, early second trimester and was following because, you know, it was a very good chance that she would not carry to 36 weeks, which is my cutoff to be able to go and help her. And so... Um, so that was, that was it. We I was just kind of loosely involved. She was seeing a midwife down in her state, um, who did not have any experience with multiples at all and did not want to attend this birth without somebody who was experienced. Yeah, I can't imagine there'd be many people that would feel confident in that space. Yes. Um, and I, I don't think so. And, and I would hope not. Although I do run into people from time to time that um, midwives that have a great deal of hubris, and I think they think that um, they're invincible, um, and I, and that comes with actually a lack of experience rather than more experience. You know, you really have to have a reverence for the process and really look deep within to decide if you want to do something like this. I I didn't take it on lightly. So I, I just want to be clear about that. I, it's easy to see something on social media and be like, oh, and they just all decided this was a great idea. It was not like that at all, not for the family and certainly not for, for me. Yeah. So what was the sort of pre-planning involved when you have a, a triplet home birth like that? What sort of things do you need to take into account that you wouldn't usually? Well, it's not so much um, uh, different things. I mean, first of all, I, I really wasn't getting too attached to the idea until I, you know, knew she was going to get to 36 weeks. And when we got to 35 weeks, I'm like, okay, well, I'll, now I'll make some travel plans. Now I will, you know, she's got a week to go. Probably we can do this. This is, this is okay. Um, she needed not to develop gestational diabetes or preeclampsia or hypertension or any of the things, you know, just any of the things anybody could get, but that she might have been higher risk for. Um, everything had to be going okay. The biophysical profiles and um, growth scans she was getting had to be, you know, had to look good. So all of that. Um, so I would just say a, a a little bit more frequent scans, of course. They were try, try triplets, so we didn't really we didn't need to worry about anything like TTTS um, or you know one baby getting more than another from the placenta because they all had their own placentas, so there was not that kind of um, thing to worry about. So really, it was just um, mostly travel arrangements because the team that would help was going to be down um, down there near where she lived, and it would be um, two other midwives that were experienced. One had experienced 
some experience with uh, multiples and uh, the other one, like I said, she did not, but she had 40 years of experience as a midwife. And then there were three uh, students. So I felt like that was enough. And I trusted that the midwife um, down there chose people that were um, going to be uh, calm and not bring fear into the, the birth space. And and just and ultimately be helpful when needed. What an incredible experience for the students to witness. So how many weeks did she carry to? 38 and 2. Wow, that's incredible. So how, yeah, if maybe you could just talk us through how baby A, B, and C were born. That would be amazing. I can't wait to hear about it. Yeah, so... Um... Her labor was not terribly long, but um, and she labored on her side most of the time. And after about six hours or so, um, I I told her she would probably need to get up and walk around um, in order for this baby to really come down into the pelvis, so that I could, um, so that it she could come. Um, we knew there were two girls uh, and a boy in that order, and. Um, so she did. I said, you know, just get up and, and go to the bathroom. And she she got up. And as soon as she got onto the, the toilet, she's like, oh, yeah, I feel her coming down. And then she came back in the room. And really with what appears to be, uh, it appeared at the time, and it still appears on when, on video when I watch it, um, very little effort on her part. And she pushed this amniotic sac out. And right behind it was the head. And as the head and shoulders came out, the sac bursts and grandma caught that baby and uh, that was Ilana and so she was born and uh, they got to know each other for about an hour and she um, nursed her and contractions started again and um, she I said you know you're probably going to need to get up right again in order for that baby to come down into the pelvis and the reason for that is just because her uterus was so distended you know, because she had so much baby that, you know, that they kind of fall forward rather than go down into the pelvis. So she, um, she did, she got up and, um, and again, it, what appears to be very little effort, um, pushed out another amniotic sac and inside it was a nice little butt. And you could even see the cord around the, the leg and the baby was coming out completely frank breech but completely posterior and uh came right out in the sack again into the grandmother's hands and uh and that was it that was baby b though that was ivy um a weighed uh five pounds two ounces and ivy weighed five pounds six ounces oh let me remember what that is in kilos because i know you kilo people <laughs> Oh, it was over two kilos. <laughs> um, but I mean, they, they were all over two kilos, 2.3 kilos, I think. Um, wow. They were all over r roughly in that that area. So, um, yes, yeah, she came out and same thing. She um, she would lie down on her side and she had um, the baby A there. And then she was nursing baby B again to get some contractions going. And it had been about an hour. And I said, uh, that baby, baby C, which was the only boy, um, he had been transverse the whole pregnancy. 
And so we needed to wait for him to go either breech or cephalic. It didn't really matter. Just a longitudinal lie. And he was starting to go. And I said, if you lie down on one side, he's not going to like that. And he's going to, he's going to move to, um, you know, to a better position. And he was, he was moving. All three of the babies, when we monitored throughout the labor, they all sounded just fantastic. So we were never worried about their heartbeats. And and he was sounding really good. We, you have to really monitor whatever baby's left in the uterus, whether it's baby B for, with a twin birth or baby C. They tend to, there are just a lot of variables and sometimes that heart rate can dip and you need to get them out straight away. And I had explained that to her prenatally about an extraction. And then I explained it to her between babies B and C. I said, now, you know, if he you know, doesn't come down the way we want him to, or if his heart rate dips, I will have to go in and get him. And she's like, yeah, I understand. And I said, I'm telling you this now, because right now you're not having any contractions and we're not in an urgent situation. And I'm just reminding you, I might need to do that. And because to give somebody really good informed consent um, in the middle of an emergency is not is not really good informed consent. So I told I we talked about it prenatally, and then again I reminded her at that time, and and you know, and she nodded that she understood. And so um, at about the hour mark, you know, we could feel he was turning down. It felt like he was turning into a breech position, and. Um, and then her water broke quite dramatically, very, a big, huge splash, one that you would um, expect if a baby wasn't down into the pelvis. So a lot of amniotic fluid, and there was also some blood in the fluid. And then the midwife, the other midwife listened, um, she grabbed the Doppler straight away, and I was grabbing a pair of sterile gloves to be prepared. And uh, she listened, and I, uh, she said the heart rate was 70. And I said, okay, this is what we talked about. And so let me go in and I need to see if I can bring him down and out. And I was hoping that when I went in that I would find, you know, his little feet right there and then just say, okay, go ahead and push. He's right here. But that was not the case. They, they were in a little further. So I had to put my hand in and find his feet, which was not, I, it was fairly easy. But the problem was, is that he had not previously been compromised, so he was in very good uh, condition. And so just much like any newborn um, that's awake, if you start touching their feet, they're moving away from you. <laughs> he didn't like it. <laughs> and so he was really fighting me. And they're slippery, you know, so <laughs> I'm fighting this little um, this little two kilo baby um, and trying to grab his, his ankles and, and just bring him down. And uh, eventually I, I did grab the angles and, and I um, also had my hand on his head and the midwives were also help, trying to guide him um, a, a bit uh, longitudinally. And, uh, and I said, you know, go ahead and, and push because here his feet are right here. So give a push and I'll help you. And she did. She was pushing and, and I was kind of, I hate to use the word pulling, but that's the, that's the maneuver you do um you do a love set maneuver to get the get the baby out and so and he came out very easily because you know his sisters had come out easily and she had a very ample pelvis and I told the team you know be ready to resuscitate um, but he handled that extraction really well and no resuscitation was needed and um, 
and everything was everything was great. And about oh, 45 minutes later, the placenta came, the placentas, and um, A and C were fused, and B was kind of separate, and uh, and all was well. Everything went, as she was exhausted, as you can imagine. She did fine with two babies and a third one with an extraction. It was exhausting for her. She fell into a nice deep sleep with her three babies right next to her. Wow, it's such a beautiful, beautiful story. I, I can't imagine what it was like for you being there. And yeah, I can absolutely imagine that she was exhausted. I really liked that you you touched on informed consent there. I think that's something in the birth space that needs addressing in a big way. You know, there's a lot of, like you said, consent happening right in the time of birth when mothers can't actually give informed consent. So I really like you talking about that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, it really, I find that it minimizes the trauma and it's not as scary and they can ask questions. Um, of course, you can't you can't anticipate everything that could possibly happen. But I could anticipate the likelihood of having to do an extraction was was rather high in my opinion in these circumstances. It wasn't it wouldn't have been unusual. So I I needed her to understand that, and then also making her part of the the whole thing. I, I watch a lot of breech birth videos because I'm asked to by pe people will send them to me or send them to uh, breach without borders, um, who I work with, um, teaching and ask us to do peer reviews. And I, what I see a lot of is, um, maneuvers and things being done and nobody is addressing the mother. Nobody's saying, okay, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. And, and it's very disconcerting to me because um, imagine what that would feel like just having somebody like just digging around literally in your vagina trying to grab a baby arm and they're not telling you what they're doing. And um, so, you know, when I was doing this extraction, I was really talking to her the whole time I was verbalizing what I was doing and I'm like, okay. And I'm grabbing the other foot. And at one point she's like, okay, okay. So I, I you know, I know it, it wasn't feeling good for her. And, um, and, you know, I said, okay, we, we got it. Okay. Just go ahead and give a push. And, you know, just bringing her in to that whole experience. First of all, it keeps her in her body. Um, as much as possible. Although, you know, when you hear her talk about it and she, she does, um, she has talked about it, um, on a, a live session with breach without borders the other day. And she did say, you know, I was kind of a little bit far away, but, but yet there, cause she wanted to be present for, you know, for her baby's birth. And she said it, you know, it really did help that I looped her in, uh, on what, what I was doing and what was happening. And so I think that's really important for mitigate, mitigating obstetric trauma. And, um, and it can make, can be the difference between a traumatic experience and just a really, and, and a scary one, you know, because how can it not be at least a little bit scary, but it doesn't have to be traumatizing. And so, um, so that was really important to me. And then of course, afterwards, um, I apologized to her. I said, I'm really sorry. And I apologized to the baby too, for having to pull on, on his 
little ankles. And, um, and, and that's important to me that I do that. I acknowledge that I did something that's not normally done in birth, but it did have to be done. Uh, and so that was, um, that I think that also makes a difference. Um, so, and the sooner you can do it after the incident, the, um, <laughs> or I guess it's an incident um, after the procedure, whatever you want to call it. I think that the better it is all around. I agree. I've got so many friends who, you know, things happen to them in yeah. birth and that was exactly that. It, it happened yeah. to them. They, there was no sort of process yeah. of them being involved in yeah. the decisions and, and they have been left with really traumatic experiences. Yeah. So Thank you so much for touching on that and a huge heartfelt congratulations to your client. She is an absolute uh, superwoman and I think sharing this story is going to make a huge impact on probably not only women but men around the world and I think if we can all take a step back and see a woman birthing three children at home with such grace then we can start questioning more as to why we're not doing this you know for singleton babies. Right. other work so the earliest blog that I read um, through your page was your mission to Sierra Leone is that where your humanitarian journey started um no I had done um I I had been in uh Afghanistan the year before that with another um NGO and a different uh humanitarian organization out of Italy um and I had also been to Ghana and Senegal doing um doing volunteer work oh gosh over the last 20 years uh for you know several weeks at a time usually about six weeks to i was in ghana for oh, a little under a year and then i had been to um uh, indonesia after the earthquake and tsunami in 2004 so i, I had done other things but um this was um the first time working with MSF um the first time that I had done it on a really large scale although Afghanistan um was a pretty large scale we were attending 700 births a month there so um so yeah it's uh um it's something that I'm doing full time now just since 2018 yeah I was just going to ask that so how much time do you spend at home in the states and how much are you away yeah it depends on the year like in Sierra Leone I was there for 9 months and um, in, uh, and then I was in South Sudan for six months. Um, there are other places they were emergency responses. So they were three months. Uh, and it depends. I, sometimes I come home, I'm home for six weeks. And like this time I have been home from, I was, my last assignment was Egypt. And then I did a whole bunch of teaching for Breach Without Borders. So I got home from Egypt in, um, in April. And I, that's when I attended the other triplet birth last spring. And um, so I've been home since then because I was teaching. So I probably will do another assignment starting this fall. I actually talked to my career manager next week to to see what we're we're gonna do. But I've been teaching a lot with Breach Without Borders, and that's important to me as well. So I've been splitting my time between those two things now. Yeah, I love that when you speak about breach, you use the word normal. You know, it is a normal birth. 
Whereas the language around breach that I've seen lately is people saying it's a variation of normal. What are your sort of thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I I don't like that. I when we it is normal. We need what we need to do is we need to normalize breech birth, um, and normalize vaginal breech birth, and not you know not oh everybody needs a cesarean, but breech birth in and of itself because it only um, babies only present breech three or four percent of the time. It's not a variation of normal by definition, and I think when we just say, oh, breech birth is normal. If we make it sound um, like, oh, anybody can do it. Yeah, anybody really, um, most women can birth breech babies just like they can cephalic. But a lot of it will depend on their their care providers. Um, you can run into some issues with breech um, at a higher rate. There, There's a slightly higher rate of needing intervention with a breech than there is with a cephalic baby. And if you have a provider that does not know how to manage that, it can go downhill very quickly. So um, I would say that in the hands of um, a skilled provider, skilled in, in breech birth, um, breech birth can be, is very safe and it um, absolutely can be done. Um, but with the, when I debrief or, or do peer reviews with people that have had because those are the ones that come to me. They don't come out. They don't come to me when the babies just slid out. Because what is there to peer review, right? I get the hard ones, and the hard ones are usually um, by providers that have far less experience um, and maybe have not had a lot of uh, training, or some have not had any training at all. And so that's when you run into to difficulty with it. And so if someone had a baby in a breech position and they were sort of in the system and getting steered down one route, would would the advice that you would give is to be maybe to look for a provider that's experienced in doing breech births instead of sort of yes. being cut off straight away with one option and one option only? Yes, yes. And, and a lot of times they don't even offer ECV, you know, trying to turn the baby. And I, I tell people, you know, that ask me, they say, oh, I don't have anybody that will do breach here. And I'm like, well, if it's between ECV or, or a cesarean, by all means, try the ECV. But, you know, for me, I believe that some babies um, are breech for a very good reason. And we might not ever know that reason, even after they come out. But there's a good reason they're breech. Maybe it's a short cord. Maybe it's a tight cord, a cord around the neck. And if they were to turn it, you know, they know, oh, this doesn't feel good. And so they don't do it. And so um, I, and I, those are the ones that come out and we go, oh, that's why the babies breech. Sometimes they're breech because of the uterus um, and some uterine um, anomaly. But um, it's it can be hard to find a skilled provider. Uh, but I encourage anybody to to do that to try to find somebody that is is skilled. Um, in there in Australia, you you know you have Andrew Bissett's, and I understand Australia is a gigantic country, so people can't just oh let's go to see Andrew. But he's wonderful, and he's in anybody in Sydney um, can access him, and he's fantastic. So. Um, I love him. I taught with him when I was in Australia um, back in 2022. In terms of maternal and under five mortality rates in Sierra Leone, I understand they are the highest in the world. Why do you think the rates are so alarming? And 
And what was that like entering a community with so much combined grief? Because I, I can imagine, you know, in that space of birth and death, there's a lot that they're holding on to when the rates are that high. Yeah, you know, they're always vying for the top, um, the top position for maternal and infant mortality, along with Afghanistan and um, I forget who the third one was uh, at that time. So, you know, when I write these blogs, I was there in like 2019. So they were the first, you know, and they were at the top space in the world. I'm sure if we look now, um, may, maybe it's back to Afghanistan or they might be the third, but they're way up there at the top. And those are the places that I go in um, sub-Saharan Africa and um, and, and other, um, other places um, in Indonesia and so forth. But yeah, it it's um it's interesting going to those places because if you were to ask somebody if they know of someone that's died giving birth, everybody does. Everybody does. And not just I heard about somebody want a sister, um I've met people who are like, yeah, my mother, my mother died. Um giving birth to me. And I'm like, well, and I'm a midwife now. I'm like, wow. As um, I met a woman with a really incredible um, story and she thanked me. She thanked me for coming, um, you know, to her country and helping um, with the, with birthing women there because they die at such alarmingly high rates. And like, she got it because it was very personal for her. Um, so that's the difference between going someplace like uh, sub-Saharan Africa, where mortality rates are high like that, and our countries, do you personally know anybody that's died giving birth? I mean, you probably don't. No. Well, thankfully, and and I don't personally either, other than the people that I've taken care of. I've had, I've had um, you know, I have to write up these reports every time there's a maternal mortality in the places where I go. That's part of my job. And it's heinous. It's just awful. Um, and uh, in um, in South Sudan, I had five um, uh, maternal deaths, but none of them were preventable, and none of them were from the usual suspects. And um, you know, the mortality rates are high because of hemorrhage, sepsis, hypertensive disorders, unsafe abortions, and those are the you know four leading causes of of maternal death in those countries. Um, and and very little access to care. So because people always ask me why, and, and it's why little access to care, um, less skilled providers, you know, not getting care in a timely manner. Yeah. Well, it must be absolutely heartbreaking, um, but also very satisfying the work that you're doing. Yeah, both. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, when you're with this woman and they're birthing, I can imagine most of them aren't able to communicate with you um, via language. Exactly. How, how is that experience? Like what, what for you is the language of birth? Yeah, it's, um, you, that's interesting that you ask that because, yeah, I don't, I can't communicate with them. Even though I speak other languages, they certainly are not tribal languages. So I can communicate with my staff because they will speak French or English or Spanish, whatever language. But the, the women we're serving are uh, generally not, we're in refugee camps and they're not educated 
um, in the school system, and so they don't learn the national language. So yeah, I cannot communicate, and I often have to do that through an interpreter. But it's also really important to me to um, make eye contact and make sure they can see my face, so they understand. You know, they you can see fear on somebody's face, and you can see compassion and you know, during COVID, it was so terrible because we had to wear masks. And I'm like, that's you're taking away my communication skills when you put a mask on me. And it's just awful. And sometimes I would move my mask so that somebody could just see me and see my mouth and see my whole face. Um, because you can communicate what you need to by the tone of your voice. And, you know, somebody's interpreting, but I want them to also hear the tone of my voice because it's going to be different than the interpreters and then just i would will touch their hand or i touch their their hip or whatever you know whatever i'm close to that's going to give them some sort of comfort um and and they understand it i have and i've been with some women completely alone in birth and it's it's been okay um and i've understood them and they've understood me um, because I can see what they're conveying to me and their their um, their faces. So, um, yeah, the language of birth is a lot of it's in the eyes. Um, and that's why I tell people here, midwives in the, the U.S., you know, you don't need to talk as much as you think you do at births. And it's in it really it's an intervention. So you might want to not talk so much because you're you're really disrupting the process. And, uh, you know, I really can't talk to the women that I. Um, that I serve in those places, but we do manage to communicate. That's really beautiful in in simplistic form. I think just saying, you know, birth, the language of birth is through someone's eyes is really, really beautiful, and it it just shows that connection that women have um, on that soul level. You know, to be able to look at some, look into someone's eyes um, and be able to support them through the biggest transformation of their life. Yeah. I could sit here and talk to you for hours about everything, everywhere you've been and what you've done. Um, and I really hope you, you know, continue to share online because it's, it's been really amazing to read. I wanted to ask you, do you know how many births you've attended in total? Um, a little over 5,000 at this point. Um, not as many as some, but, you know, more than other people. But I, I do go to places with really high... Um, um, you know, we have high birth rates in these places. Like I said, in Afghanistan, it was about 700 a month. So that's a lot. I wasn't, wasn't at, of course, all 700. It was impossible. We had several going on at a time, but um, still quite a number. You are very inspiring, Christine. And I think shifting the perspective on birth so dramatically by sharing your journey with the world. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you. One last parting question. What do you think is the most important preparation women can make for birth? I think um, just um, believing in themselves, looking within and knowing that they have everything that they need to birth their baby. And the more they look within themselves and the less they look outside, um, the, the better, 
the better off they're going to be because they know they already know how to do it. We were born for this. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the follow button to be notified when the next episode is out and follow our Instagram, born for this underscore the podcast.